Welcome to the official podcast for Triumvir Clio's School of Classical Civilization. I'm Beth, a.k.a. Triumvir Clio. We begin our journey through Aristophanes' works with the Acarnians, in which we start learning that Aristophanes is getting sick of the Peloponnesian War. I used the 11 comedies published by the Athenian Society that's available on Project Gutenberg. The translator is not credited, but... Oscar Wilde was a member of the Athenian Society at the time, so it is possible that he is behind this book. Depending on which translation you use, you will see some words, generally proper nouns, that are spelled differently. This arises because of how the names are transliterated from the Greek alphabet to the English alphabet. Translation goes word by word, and transliteration goes letter by letter. This means that some translators will choose to use a C in a word, where another translator will choose to use a K, or A versus E. It is a debate over whether to use the letters or the sounds the letters make to spell the word in a translation. Um, And there is no correct answer for that question. The Acarnians is Aristophanes' third play, but the oldest one of his plays to survive. It was first produced in 425 BCE at the Linnea Festival, where it won first prize. Like several of Aristophanes' surviving works, this play is set in the Peloponnesian War, a.k.a. the present, to Aristophanes. You don't need to know a lot about this war, but you do need the basics. The Peloponnesian War occurred in two phases. Aristophanes lived and wrote during the second phase. Uh, The peninsula that makes up the southern part of mainland Greece is known as the Peloponnese. It is where the city of Sparta is located. Athens, located on the eastern part of the country, is not on the Peloponnese. In the Peloponnesian War, Athens and its allies fought against Sparta and its allies. The Acarnians were from the west, across the isthmus that separates the Peloponnese from the rest of mainland Greece. They were allied with Athens, but could only easily reach their territory by crossing territory controlled by Sparta and its allies. And therein lies the plot, such as it is, of this play. A big difference you'll find between comedies and tragedies in ancient Greece is the number of characters. The play was still performed by a small number of actors, but each played a lot more roles. Our protagonist is Dikaeopolis. We also meet his wife and daughter as the play progresses. Dikaeopolis befriends Amphitheus. He is not, on the other hand, friends with Theorus. Pseudotarbus is a messenger who speaks in gibberish. And in this play, we get to meet Euripides, yes, the real Euripides, and his servant, uh, Cephisophon. Lamachus is an Athenian general and the antagonist to Dikaeopolis. Much of the humor in this play arises in making fun of him. Nicarchus also plays the role of antagonist. There's an assortment of characters without specific names who appear for brief interactions with Dikaeopolis. And of course, this being a Greek play, there is a homogenous chorus, in this case made up of Acarnian elders, so people from that region who are in Athens and really want to go home. As a reminder, there are six parts of a comedy that we will try to identify as we go through the plot summary. Prologue, Parados, Agon, Parabasis, Episode, and Exodus. If you've already read the Acarnians, I salute you. I find much of this play to fall into the realm of you had to be there in ancient Athens to find the humor. But hopefully this summary will help you find the satire within it. The play begins 
on the Nix, spelled the way it sounds, P-N-Y-X, where the Athenian assembly meets. Dikaeopolis has found himself stuck in Athens when all he wants is to go home to his farm in the country of Acarne. Um, after his brief monologue, some Athenian citizens enter to begin the day's business, which includes some speakers addressing the assembly. The first speaker to try to address the assembly is Amphitheus, who claims to be immortal. The assembly tries to throw him out, but Dikaeopolis befriends him. There is some additional business of various ambassadors addressing the assembly and Dikaeopolis making fun of them. As this business goes on, Dikaeopolis gives Amphitheus eight drachmae to go and make a private truce between the Spartans, or Lacedaemonians, and himself. Amphitheus exits, but returns shortly to state that he is being chased by some old men from Acarne. He also comes bearing the truce that Dikaeopolis had sought, or rather, multiple options for the truce. They are described like wine, of different ages, aka lengths, and Dikaeopolis accepts the 30-year one. The chorus of Acarnians enters and sings a paradox about how they are angry with the Spartans because the Spartans have burnt their farms. They are also angry with Dikaeopolis for attempting a peace with the Spartans. The chorus and Dikaeopolis argue about whether or not the treaty should be made. Dikaeopolis wins the argument by grabbing a basket of coals that one of the Acarnians had been carrying. And then he holds the basket of coals hostage and threatens to kill the basket of coals unless he gets his way. If you were reading this part and wondering if that just happened, yes, that is what just happened. But since holding a basket of coals hostage isn't really the most convincing of arguments, Dikaeopolis says he will put his head on a chopping block and give a persuasive speech in support of his cause. There's a jab here at Athenian politician Cleon, who is not an uncommon target of Aristophanes' pen. Since he doesn't have a block at his own house, he goes next door to where Euripides lives. Euripides is another frequent target in Aristophanes' plays, and this exchange makes fun of the similarity of the tragic heroes found in Euripides' plays. And yes, when we get to Euripides and Greek tragedy, we'll make fun of him too. Dikaeopolis gives his speech. The chorus divides into a pro and con camp. You know, it was a horse, it was a mule, and Lamachus enters to find out what all the noise is about. Lamachus and Dikaeopolis argue for a bit about Dikaeopolis' plan for a private peace treaty. This is the Agon. Lamachus vows to continue the war until it has been won. Dikaeopolis, on the other hand, states that by making peace, he will be able to trade with the Peloponnesians, Megarians, and Boeotians, in other words, all of the Spartan alliance. But he will ban Lamachus from trading in his markets. The chorus is swayed by Dikaeopolis' argument and will and all approve of the truce he has made. Dikaeopolis and Lamachus exit, leaving the chorus all alone on stage. And what happens in a Greek comedy when we leave the chorus alone? They go off script. Yes, it's time for the Parabasis. The chorus sings a commentary about Aristophanes' politics, the current state of affairs, and being old. Dikaeopolis returns to set up his private market. This scene is where the humor best holds up today, and it's also where you can really appreciate Stephen Sondheim's observation that the author's reputation isn't based on taste. And because I'd like to keep this podcast family friendly, I am not going to go through all of the jokes because, well, they get pretty raunchy. You'll recall that the post-parabasis episode in a comedy is designed to comment on the agon that occurs before the parabasis. 
As the episode goes on, the state of affairs for Lamachus is repeatedly presented as a foil to the state of affairs for Dicaeopolis, ending with an extended section of dialogue in which Lamachus prepares for battle, while Dicaeopolis prepares for a feast. After a brief song to show that time has passed, Lamachus returns having been injured in battle, while Dicaeopolis returns with a girl on each arm. The conclusion is that, clearly, the peace of Dicaeopolis is superior to the war of Lamachus, and everyone exits in triumph, except for Lamachus, who exits in pain. The first theme in this play is pretty obvious, war and peace. With hindsight, we know that this play was produced fairly early in the second stage of the Peloponnesian War, but this stage had gone on for about six years by this point, so it is understandable that people would be ready for it to be over. As we've seen in the Greek tragedy course, this is also a common theme in Aeschylus's writings, but instead of addressing it with catharsis, as Aeschylus does, Aristophanes uses absurdism. We can also look at this play through the lens of old comedy. It is very topical, which is why some of it doesn't make that much sense to the average reader today. This also means that there are references to a number of real people, including the playwrights Aeschylus and Euripides, and politicians such as Pericles and Cleon, who was not a fan of Aristophanes, as we will see in future comedies. As one would hope from the father of comedy, this play follows the form of old comedy very closely. Next week, we'll take on another tragedy, Aeschylus's Agamemnon, and in two weeks, we'll come back to Aristophanes for the nights. You can join the discussion of this and everything covered in this podcast by following the link in my show notes. And if you're enjoying what you've heard so far, please consider supporting the show with a monthly donation of your choosing, just like public radio. And please also consider giving a five-star review on your podcatcher of choice so that more people can discover the fun that is Triumvir Clio's School of Classical Civilization.